Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Envelope Podcast, where we bring you revealing and distinctive conversations with the creative talents behind some of your favorite shows and movies. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Villarreal. And I have to say, as a kid of the 90s, I speak with authority when I say the early work of this week's guest provided seminal moments to my generation. Mark, why don't you fill our listeners in on who you're talking to this week? I spoke with one of the stars of the breakout hit Yellow Jackets, which just wrapped up its second season. And indeed, Christina Ricci has been a star since she was a child back in the 90s. From her debut in Mermaids to The Addams Family and Now and Then to The Ice Storm, The Opposite of Sex in Buffalo 66, she very much has grown up in front of audiences, moving on to movies like Monster and Speed Racer. Yellow Jackets is both a psychological horror story and a coming-of-age drama as it follows the saga of a girls' soccer team stranded in the wilderness for nearly a year after a plane crash in the 90s. Christina plays one of the survivors in the present day, alongside co-stars that include Melanie Linsky, Juliette Lewis, Tony Cypress, Lauren Ambrose, and Elijah Wood. Christina is so good in capturing how Misty is both painfully endearing and also like totally unhinged. And with her dry humor and eccentric energy, like I can't think of anyone better suited to play the adult Misty. Like it's a casting that really plays off the pop culture nostalgia of her early roles. And she had more than a few things to say about that, Yvonne, as well as the new series Wednesday that revives one of her signature roles. So let's get to the conversation. Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. And now I'm kind of fresh off watching the season finale of Yellow Jackets, where you star as Misty Quigley, 25 years after surviving a plane crash as a teenager. And there's something just so engaging about the way that you play Misty. She's got this like spunky kind of grown-up Nancy Drew appeal that also makes it really easy to forget that she's clearly a psychopath with a pretty high body count. And is that division something that appealed to you about the character? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, what really appealed to me about the show and about all the characters in the adult storyline is this idea of, you know, the show's really about trauma and how trauma affects people. We come up against this all the time these days and this expectation of victims of trauma to be perfect. And we almost discount what people have gone through if they sort of don't come out a version of a victim that we expect or recognize. And I loved the variety <laughs> of mm. reaction and evolution that the young survivors had in becoming the adults. What we end up with, the different characters we end up with as adults from people who've gone through the same trauma, I think is really appealing. And I liked Misty. I think what you're talking about, the qualities that you're describing, are really her ability as a survivor to create happiness and interest and joy in her life on a daily basis to sort of fight and counteract her real deep innate pain and misery that exists inside of her. I, I also understand why people like Misty, and I'm glad people like Misty. I like Misty, you know? And is that something that's important to you, to, like, like a character? Like, to hear you say that you like Misty is something I find really endearing. Yeah, it's not important to me that I like a character. 
I find her entertaining. I like watching her. She's not someone I would want to know in real life. <laughs> um, I feel like I understand her. And I think once you understand a person, they, all their behavior is justified. I'm not an actor who feels that I have to like the character I'm playing in order to play them. I've never really played anyone truly awful, though, <laughs> or like evil. So I'm not sure. I, I actually have never faced that issue. Oh, you know what? The character in Monster I really didn't respect or like, but I played her anyway. <laughs> now, why is that? What was it that you didn't like or respect? Well, she was a coward. Them? She was a mm. coward who was so afraid. Of, and who know, you know what I mean? Like, but again, I really don't like judging people <laughs> in yeah. general. I didn't like the way she behaved or the things that she did in that story because I found them to be cowardly and I couldn't respect those choices. And I also found her to be like a bit of a user. But again, as I, I really don't like judging or dismissing or condemning people. So I feel like she probably was that way because of what she had experienced in life. Um, but mm -hmm. we don't know very much about that character before she sort of shows up. So I could only go by her actions. <laughs> As Yellow Jackets was coming together and you learned that the cast was like also going to include Juliette Lewis and Melanie Linsky, and the show was going to kind of play off the fact that the three of you were sort of known, you know, as 90s actors. Was that meaningful to you? Was that like a conversation that the three of you ever had? Well, no. I mean, that's not really something that anyone said to us. I thought we were, they were just getting really great actresses in their 40s. Um, it never occurred to me that it was a casting gimmick until we started doing press. And mm. I think when you're part of a gimmick, but you consider yourself to be a serious actress, you tend to not realize that that's happening to you until later. <laughs> well, I would say I wouldn't categorize it as a gimmick. I mean, I think it just it adds like a layer to the story that... Well, it makes it, it helps with the marketing of the show, which I totally mm. understand. And now with the two timelines in the show, the teenage Misty, played by Samantha Hanrady, the two of you, more than any of the other characters, seem like you're really in sync. Like there's like, a, you can see the connection between like the teen Misty and the adult Misty more than some of the other characters. Did the two of you collaborate on that? Or like, how did that sort of come to be? You know, we had one meeting, one lunch, um, before we started shooting season one, and we just sort of talked about all the different notes that each of us had been given by the EPs. We just sort of traded notes. She's very different personality-wise than I am, and it was interesting to hear the different notes they'd given her based on her real-life personality and what they mm -hmm. wanted to sort of counteract and what they'd given me based on my real-life personality that they wanted to counteract. And comparing those, we were sort of, I think we both got a much clearer idea of what they wanted because there was a lot of question in the beginning. You know, when we did the pilot, there was a decision made that she was to be more clearly a sociopath mm -hmm. and maybe more clinically follow that sort of diagnosis. But then once we got to season one, understandably, the idea of pigeonholing this character into that, I think it limits what you can do with her later on. So there was a decision to not have her be that anymore and certainly not to label her that way. So we were sort of coming from a place, I think both of us, of a, of a little bit, we were a little unclear exactly mm. what we should be doing. So by trading notes in that way, I think we were really able to figure 
it out. And then I'm so taken with the fact that you yourself grew up in New Jersey in the 90s. You played on a girls' soccer team. And now here you are on this television show that's kind of based around a girls' soccer team in New Jersey in the 90s. Like, do you feel like that gives you any extra insights into the sort of the authenticity of that younger storyline? Has Have the producers ever sort of like drawn on your I tried to experience? give, I was in the makeup trailer once with a couple of the first season cast of the the younger younger cast. And they were complaining about having to hide, cover up tattoos with their uniforms. And I was like, well, you know what we used to do with our uniforms? And I tried to actually really give some advice, having been a girl their age playing soccer in New Jersey. And um, I, <laughs> nobody really wanted to hear it. So I tend to just keep my experience from that time to myself. Because <laughs> it's funny, I in a number of other interviews, I've seen people asking you, if you have any specific like music choices, like needle drops that you'd like to hear in the show. And I'm wondering, like, have they used any of the songs that you've suggested? I have very specific music memories and um, attitudes about music that were very normal in 1996, but now are not very normal. Um, so I don't think anyone wants to hear from me. And I'm like that person that they choose a song and I'm like, oh my God, this song? Do you know how much I made fun of anybody who liked this song in 1996? So people tend to not ask me and I've, I've learned to stay quiet. <laughs> 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 Although I just want to say, because I don't want that to be the last thing I say about it. There yeah. are so many great musical cues on the show that I really do love. I love Smashing Pumpkins, which they've used... Um, I love Radiohead. I was a huge fan of, you know, obviously I love Nirvana. So I love a lot of the music that they've chosen. But now, to, and to me, what I was about to say was that one of the things thematically that I think really works about the structure of the show is that it kind of explores like whether or not people change, that you see people and they're sort of like their younger selves. And then as you were saying, how they've kind of gone through this trauma, come out the other side and the way that they are, are, are not changed. How do you approach that with Misty? Like, do you think that Misty has changed or is she still kind of like very much her like teen self? Well, I don't really know that I believe that anybody changes that much over time. You know, I think who you are fundamentally, I think, stays the same. I think, you know, obviously you change in small ways that affect your life and affect you. But older Misty and young Misty have the same personality. It's just that there are different coping mechanisms. There are different perspectives on the world based on what she's gone through. I think there's a hypervigilance in older Misty that you don't see in younger Misty. And that mm -hmm. hypervigilance is probably the effect of not wanting to feel bad about anything that's happened to her in her life. And a lot of that would be stuff that happened during this incident in 1996. But I, I think she's, you know, she's still the same person. I think one of the things that people really enjoy about her is the fact that she's like this kind of little schemer and she's like this conniving caregiver. I mean, some people have described her as the nurse from hell. In the second season, there was a scene with younger Misty where they sort of bring back up the fact that she had destroyed the like black box recorder of the airplane. And that's the whole reason why they're like stuck and no one could find them. And I have to admit, I had like forgotten that fact. And do, I'm wondering, like, for you, are there things about Misty that, like, 
like the black box that you have to kind of remind yourself like the sort of deep mythology that the character like has now. Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of mythology around her. Um, but I think that in being the person who has who plays her, I have to sort of take anything that could seem mythical and boil it down to something very mundane and human. You know, in your youth, people, and I did this, I would make mistakes. I would do something impulsively because of something I wanted, not realizing the consequences of those actions. And sometimes I really make horrible mistakes that had very negative effects. And in that moment, when they show her before she destroys the black box and and what leads up to it, you get that this is a very childish, selfish, I finally have something I want and I, I don't want to lose it moment that, that is a mistake. It's probably not a mistake she'd make as an adult. But she also, you know, part of Misty's personality slash mythology is acting on her childish impulses. Mm. So... It's informative for me for the character because it is one of the things that keeps her shunned from groups, keeps her from being able to truly make connections and make friends. She makes sort of disastrous choices impulsively based on her needs because her needs have never been freely met by anybody. Is that fun for you to play some? I mean... It's striking that, yes, as an, even as an adult, like as cautious and careful as she can be, there is something still really impulsive and at times very reckless. Yeah, but it is really fun to play somebody who's so emotionally stunted. I mean, it's basically like playing a child in an adult body. And uh, that, to me, is really fun. It certainly makes me feel a little protective of her in certain times, which is interesting. And it makes me a little worried <laughs> for her. You know, she has absolutely, I think she has very little self awareness, <laughs> which is also incredibly freeing because I think as an actor, that's sort of the first question you have to ask about the character you're playing. How self aware is this person? Because that, that question is like at the base of, of your performance, I think. Mm. And one of the great additions in the second season is Elijah Wood coming on as a character becomes sort of a co-conspirator and a colleague with Misty. And what was it like for you simply kind of reuniting with Elijah as a performer? The two of you, of course, start together in the ice storm back in 1997 when you were both much younger. What was it like just reuniting with Elijah? You know, it was great working with him. When we worked together, I think we were both 15, and we didn't really, like, hang out that much. We had separate tutors. He was great to work with, even at that time. So professional, so talented. Now, you know, I think now that we're both adults, we're sort of able to socialize more or have, or, you know, get to know each other more as peers. And we had a really great time this season working together. I think we make a really good team. We work in very similar ways. And he's just so wonderful and smart and so good. He's just great to work with. You think I'm capable of murder? Sure. You're charming and impulsive. It's your traits of most serial killers. Only you pull it off. Look, my grandmother was convicted of killing my grandpa Joe. Even though she got 30 years, she never failed to send me a birthday card. She was thoughtful like that. Like you. 
Look, all I'm trying to say is I like you, regardless of your extracurricular activities. There's kind of like a really fun, like sort of will-they-won't-they vibe between your characters, between Misty and Walter. And at one point, Misty refers to him as her boyfriend, but it's not clear if, like, that's just her being kind of delusional. And how do you feel about the the sort of the romantic prospects between the two of them? Well, I mean, I don't know. I She seems so much like a little girl and child, like I said. I can't, I don't know, it's hard to imagine her <laughs> in an adult relationship And, you know, up until this point in her life, she's never had one. I personally don't know where all of it's going uh, with with Walter and Misty. I love seeing them together on screen. I think their dynamic is so fun, really entertaining and endearing. I don't know what's going to go on, and I don't really want to say anything because I'm not the writers. (laughs) And anytime I do say anything, I'm always wrong. So... (laughs) I'm just going to hold my tongue and say, I don't know. I find them really entertaining. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, like, you know, the show is centered around this group of women and really explores female friendship, both in the younger storyline and in the adult storyline. And partway through the season, there's a scene where young Misty, like, pushes her friend off of a cliff. And it really is a shocking moment in the show, even with everything that we already know about Misty. Come on, Bessie, you don't actually think I, I would do something like that, do you? You're not, you're not my best friend, you're a psycho. What? No, 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 Crystal, Crystal, stop, stop. Okay, you can't tell anyone. I mean it, okay? I, I, I'll do whatever you want, I will flush the toilet for you, and I'll do all your chores, okay? You just, you cannot tell anybody, please. Or what, you'll poison me? No. And when you're, like, reading a script and you come across a scene like that, what do you make of it? Like, how does that impact, like, how you are sort of, like, performing your adult Misty? Well, again, to me, it's like the black box thing. It's a very, like, impulsive, immature, not thought out kind of -of spur-of-the-moment reaction if she did indeed push her off the cliff. I believe the way it was shot to me, I was like, did she push her or did... Because there's this, like, a feeling that ultimately what happens to her has something to do with the wilderness, quote-unquote. But, you know, she did push, she pushed her. Um, (laughs) It's like the same kind of mistake she keeps making. And then what did you make of the moment at the end of the season where Misty accidentally kills her adult best friend, Juliette Lewis's Natalie, Well, yeah, it's like, again, it's just, it's really tragic, tragic that because she can't handle these crazy, like, needs and feelings and she's so emotionally stunted and ends up again causing herself really horrible loss. But also with Natalie, it was like not, her intention. Like, she wasn't trying to hurt Yeah, Natalie. no, she's trying to kill the other one because she thinks that she's going to shoot Natalie, and it results, again, in a disastrous outcome. Now, I know that you said you don't like to make predictions for what's going to happen next. I won't 
ask you for your thoughts on <laughs> season three. But it's just a like, trap. It's a trap to say what you think might happen, <laughs> especially when it hasn't been written yet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But now, just simply, what as far as you know, like what is the status of season three with the writer strike that's happening now? I, I imagine it's on pause. And do you have any idea of what's what's going to be happening? Um, you know, I don't. Uh, I know that, you know, justifiably they will not be writing until there is a deal in place for the WGA in which all the writers are properly protected and compensated. And, you know, I think as a cast and as a crew, we all uh, completely support our writers and the WGA striking. I mean, I don't know how the strike will affect the timing of season three, I guess uh, that'll depend on how long it goes on. Hmm. More with Christina Ricci after the break. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with future episodes, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Envelope and my conversation with actor Christina Ricci. Christina, aside from Yellow Jackets touching on some 90s nostalgia, you're also in Netflix's series Wednesday, a huge hit that welcomes you back in this Adams Family world, but as a new character. What was that experience like for you? I played Wednesday as a young person. This character I never stop answering questions about. In every interview I've done since I've played that character, I have spoken about Wednesday, the character. To have played someone who really, like, every day is brought up to me, it really makes you have a certain sentimentality about that character and that time in your life and all those things. So it's really, uh, it was really meaningful to me to be asked to be a part of the new iteration of that character. That really meant something to me, and I was very grateful for that. What was it like with this character that you're so well-known for that in some ways has become so tied to you in your life? Like, what was it like to watch someone else play that part? Like, did you have any sort of conversations with Jenna Ortega about the character, about playing that part? Well, I mean, I came on to the project two months before they were totally wrapped, and they Mm. shot for, like, nine months. So she'd been playing that character for about seven months before I showed up on set. So I did not speak to her about the character beforehand. And, you know, she's such a capable, amazing actress. If anything, it was just fun to see her play that character with such dignity and um, self-respect and intelligence I mean, she's just perfect for the role, um, in my humble opinion. And I've heard you say how for you, the character of Wednesday is someone that you see as kind of inspiring for children in that she's someone who's very true to her own self. And I'm wondering, as you yourself have grown, and especially now that you're a mother of two yourself, like, have your, has your opinion on Wednesday as sort of an inspiration for children changed at all? No, I feel very much the same way. Um, And especially when you watch, I have an eight-year-old now, and watching him deal with peer pressure or trends, 
or any of those things just makes me want to show him that character every day. Mm. I think that people in general wish that they had more of that um, self-possession that Wednesday has and that refusal to let anybody else's opinions change her or make her feel bad. That idea of just being a complete individual, not needing to belong to any groups or categories or look like anyone else, you know, I think that is really important. And I wish that it existed more. But do you think when you were playing Wednesday, did you feel like really connected to that character? Like, did it feel important to you at the time? No, I mean, I was 10 and then I was 12. So nothing really felt important to me at the time. (laughs) Um, But I will say that I was relieved. I remember feeling a lot of relief to be playing a character like that instead of what mostly as a little girl actor people tried to make me do. You know, I was sick of being told to smile and be more excited and enthusiastic. Mm. Because I'd read in an, another interview where prior to Yellow Jackets that you'd been sort of not taking as many acting roles and in part you'd been sort of going to a lot of fan conventions. And I would imagine that that's like you're sort of confronted very strongly with like what people think of you and what they, you know, what roles like resonate with people from those conventions. What were those experiences like? Did like did you learn anything about your sort of fandom or what people think of your roles from going to those conventions? Yeah, you know, it wasn't that I wasn't taking acting roles. It's that I wasn't being cast in things very much and I mm. was the sole supporter of my inter- my family. Um and so something that came out of necessity for me ended up being something really lovely in that I already knew how much Wednesday sort of meant to people. I already knew because I've spoken about her in every single interview I've ever done in my career since playing her, and I played her when I was 10, so it's been a real long time talking about her. (laughs) But it's not also just Wednesday, I have to say. Like, having gone to those conventions and stuff, it's really interesting how, you know, people being people find very specific and particular things that can really get them through hard times and get them through Mm -hmm. their lives and they identify with. And it's been really incredible to me as an actor to see all the different characters I've played that people hold really close to them. And really what it made me feel more than feeling, I guess Wednesday is very meaningful to a lot of people. She's somebody that, you know, it makes so much sense that she'd be held up as as a hero, as an icon, as all these things. But what those conventions really did for me more was help me to really value the work that we do as actors, mm. as writers, as filmmakers and content creators. And do you even recall still, like, even before Wednesday, before Mermaids, like, what it was that appealed to you about acting? Like, What got you started so young? So I always joke that I identify as a party pooper um, and and a contrarian. As I'm sure you've noticed in interviewing me, I always have a contrary thought to anything that's suggested. But here's the party pooper part of this, this interview. I was in a very, very abusive house when I was a child. I was a very unhappy little kid, and I was searching for a way out of my everyday life. 
And the second that I realized that there was this thing that I was good at that might lift me out of this situation, it became very important to me (laughs) that I use it to get out. And Mm. so this career for me, it was a refuge and an escape from what was a very um, unpleasant childhood. It's astonishing for you to have recognized that at that age. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's a reflection of how bad things were. Hmm. And do you feel like it did that for you? Yes, absolutely. It absolutely did. You know, I was taken out of my reality for six to nine months at a time on location making movies. You know, even the audition process, you know, my mother and I would get to leave our house in the afternoons and spend from after school until maybe 8 p.m. traveling to New York, auditioning and coming back. So it definitely lessened the intensity of what was going on in my home life as a child. And then once I was actually booking movies and traveling, like being exposed to the world often does for people, ways out become apparent. Mm. That does not make you a party pooper at all. <laughs> well, I just and mean I, like, well, here, I appreciate, here, comes, no, but, here comes the I downer moment. Your, <laughs> your candor in speaking about that. Well, but, it's hard for me to pretend it's anything else. It's like, mm. you know, I didn't really care that much about acting aside from that reason until I was much older and didn't have that much to escape from. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And do you remember that moment when, like, you realized, like, oh, I actually like this? Yeah, you know, it was when I started doing uh, a lot of independent film. And, Mm. again, I was sort of, you know, the reason I got uh, The Opposite of Sex, which was Mm. one of the first independent films I did in the 90s that kind of helped me have an adult career. I was cast because I was different, You know, I was cast because I wasn't being winky or cute about the material. And so, again, I think what I loved about independent film is that the people making the movies, the directors, the writers actually appreciated how different I was. And then once I realized I was being given that opportunity, you know, I tried to return the favor by really committing and really learning about acting and understanding it on an emotional level. And this is a funny thing, but I've had two auditions in my life that were with really incredible actors. And the first one was with Kathy Bates for Dolores Claiborne. So in this audition, I'm reading the lines. I don't think I had ever, I think I had always had to like fake emotion before as a child Mm -hmm. actor. And it was the first time that reading the lines with Kathy Bates, um, I just became completely overwhelmed by the emotion of the scene. And that had never happened to me before. And, you know, Kathy Bates being so incredible, we got through the scene and she walked outside the hallway with me and held me and said, that's acting, you know? Mm -hmm. And it really changed the way I thought about the art form. So that was the first time. And then I had another audition when I was older uh, with Daniel Day-Lewis for The Crucible. And again, in doing that scene with this incredible actor, like the emotion of the scene so took over my body, like my skin burned. I felt such rage, something I don't think I'd ever really allowed myself to feel in real life. And it was just connected to the words I was saying. And that, again, completely changed the way I viewed the art form. Wow, that's incredible. 
yeah, I, those two experiences were really, really amazing to me. It's funny, you always hear people with these like horror stories of auditions, like how hard they are. Well, yeah, and- I've had lots of really terrible auditions too, but the terrible ones didn't change my life. <laughs> and now, if I can, I want to ask just one question about Mermaids, your very first film. That movie has just such an amazing cast with Cher, Winona Ryder, yourself, Bob Hoskins. And is that the kind of thing where in retrospect, like you realize probably what like an, an amazing experience that was and like what an incredible cast that was. Well, no, again, on the contrary, <laughs> my I had a family that was obsessed with movies, mm. um, obsessed with film. You know, my mother showed me all of Hitchcock's movies before I was 10. My dad was obsessed with Scorsese. You know, my brothers happened to be in love with Winona Ryder and we watched all of Winona Ryder's films beforehand. My mother, well, the second she heard I was auditioning for Mermaids, she had a share movie, like a little like film festival for me, where we even watched Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is a fairly obscure film of hers. Yeah, Yeah, I knew all of these people, and I was really excited to be there and working with them. And your your career now, you've been in independent films, studio films, you've been on Broadway, you've acted on TV, you've done producing. Like, do you have any sort of further ambitions? Like in, in some ways, what what do you see for yourself like moving forward? Well, I'm definitely going to be producing more. And, you know, I hope to direct something in the near future. And I just, as an actor, I just want to keep playing. I just want to play really interesting characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just the last thing I want to ask you, I've heard that you are a very voracious reader, And Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you've been reading recently, if anything that you've really enjoyed. Oh, I just read um, Don't Call Me Home by Alex O'Dear. It is such an incredible memoir. Um, Mm. I couldn't put this book down. It's just beautifully written. There's no actual magical realism in it, but it has like that feeling. Uh, It's it's just such a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, Dealing a lot with uh, mother-daughter relationship, but also this very specific time and place and childhood. So I really love that. I've been reading different things. I read this book called Trust, which was interesting. I went back and I read those two books, Circe and then uh, The Song of Achilles. I liked Mm. those very much. I know. Do you read stuff as like a sort of like an escape from your work or especially as when you have like producer brain, are you like thinking like, oh, maybe I could make that? Uh, sometimes, uh, both. I mean, I tend to find, uh, you know, I've been more successful with um, optioning IP from articles than from novels. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, by the time I read a novel, it's, you know, it was optioned when it was a galley, in galley form. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but I have found articles that had led to some interesting uh, books and some true crime stuff and some true crime novels that are like out of print and stuff like that. So it's a combination. I tend to really like to read uh, in airports and airplanes and I do a lot of traveling. So, you know, if I happen to come across something that I think would make a really interesting project, then bonus. Well, Christina Ricci, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a wonderful conversation, and then I really appreciate you making time for us. Thank you. I really appreciate you talking to me and um, giving me this platform. So, thank you. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production. 
It is produced by Taya Francesca Price and Mara Laser, and edited by Mitra Caboli and Lauren Rapp. This episode was mixed and mastered by Mario Diaz. Our executive producer is Hiba Elorbani. Our theme music is by Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Matt Brennan, Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, Kayla Bell, Patricia Gardner, Dylan Harris, Brandon Sides, David Viramontes, and Vanessa Franco. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. A new episode airs next week. See you then.